About 30 years ago, I was leading a Bible study for a group of older adults. I was, by about 40 years, the youngest person in the room. The next youngest was at least 40 years older than I was. Everyone was in their 70s and 80s, there even a couple of folks who were, who were in their 90s. They asked me to lead a Bible study for their group because their Sunday school class had folded a few years before and they missed being together with each other. And so I said, sure, we can do this. We'll do it in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, It'll, it will be, be fun. What would you like me to teach on? I asked, they said, teach on the book of Psalms. We know there's 150, but just take eight weeks to share with us your eight favorite Psalms. I was happy to do so. The first week we read Psalm one. I, would, I stood up at the beginning of the class, read the text, shared 15 minutes of notes with them, and then we got into a conversation. There are about 30 uh, older adults in this group. We got into a conversation around the text. Same thing the next week. We read Psalm 8 this week, shared some notes, some highlights, theological ideas behind the text, and then we got into a conversation. In week three, I stood up like I had in the first two to read Psalm 23. I decided to read it on that particular day from the old King James Version. There's something Shakespearean and regal about the King James, the way it sounds, the way it just rolls off the tongue. I started my reading, and all of a sudden, the entire class, everyone stood together with me, and without their Bibles, recited it by memory. We got to that part, that, that famous part, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. It was a goosebump on goosebumps moment. It was one of the most powerful experiences I've had in, in ministry. When we were done, they all sat back down. I closed my Bible, and I said to them, what just happened? <laughs> and this very kind and gracious 80-year-old sitting on the front row of the, the classroom set up said, well, 50 years ago, we started a class in the middle of World War II for young adults. Many of us had husbands who were serving in the military. Some were in Europe, others were in the South Pacific. All of us were worried about our friends and families and we needed a place where we could gather on Sundays to encourage each other and provide support for each other. We had about 100 people back in the day, she said, that would gather every Sunday for the Sunday school class and then we would go on to the worship service later at, at 11 o'clock. It was powerful, Glenn. We decided on the very first Sunday that we would memorize and recite every Sunday going forward Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Well, I was smart enough in that moment to recognize I could just set my notes that I'd prepared to guide them and just let them share. I said, tell me about your experiences reciting this psalm and the ways that it's touched your life. Another woman, a very good friend of the one who spoke first said, you know, my husband did not come back. He died in the South Pacific. And some of the people who are in this room right now who came to my house, recited Psalm 23, sat by me on my couch and held my hand while saying nothing else. Another said, was about 10 years ago when my husband was dying. We took him to the hospital. Every day that he was there, I would show up and recite. We would recite together Psalm 23. The last three days before he died, though, he lost his speech. But I would still show up, hold his hand, 
recite those words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. And he would squeeze my hand. I knew he could hear me. Another one, this one was a, was a man. He said when we lost our daughter so many years ago, she was just a tiny little one, just a tiny little baby. When we lost her, it was some of these people in this room who showed up at our house and helped us through. Not just right after her death, but week after week after week, knowing that I needed someone to shepherd me, to shepherd my wife, to shepherd our family through this terrible and difficult time. Story after story after story after story of the way this community of faith cared for each other. I dare say that whether you have been a believer your whole life or an unbeliever, whether you've been in church or synagogue forever or never darkened the, a church until it tore or synagogue door until this day, you already knew, knew Psalm 23. You already knew the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You might not know it's a psalm. You might not even know it's from the Bible, but you know there's something powerful about it. It seems to appear in our culture in a variety of places in all sorts of ways and styles and types. In fact, if you, I think that's God calling to let us know. <laughs> if you look carefully, you'll see that these images and words permeate our culture. Someone wrote last week that Mr. Rogers, in a way, was our good shepherd. Mr. Rogers was the one who shepherded our, our youngest and our smallest for year after year after year with good words of grace and inclusion. Do some of you remember the TV show MASH? We used to reserve every Thursday night to watch it on CBS. Love that show. The good shepherd for the soldiers, the surgeons, and the nurses was Father Mulcahy. And not only for them, but in many ways for us as we learned some of the difficult difficult lessons of war and how painful and awful it can be. Even someone else suggests that, that the bishop in Les Mis, in both the theatrical production and the movie, the bishop, near the beginning, when Jean Valjean has been set free from prison, he makes his way to the bishop's home. He's starving. He's worn out. He's exhausted. The bishop feeds him a nice warm meal, allows him to sleep in his bed. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean gets up and steals all of the bishop's silver He's caught, of course, as you know the story, brought back before the bishop, but the bishop forgives him and sends him on the path of righteousness. He becomes the shepherd for, for Jean Valjean and the way he gives his life over and over and over to serving whatever community he finds himself in the name of love and grace and kindness. Uh, think of the music that we know, that we can think of just off the top of our head. There's somebody, Andy, I think his name is Johann Sebastian Bach. You've probably heard of him before. Has written some pieces inspired by Psalm 23. My favorite band, U2, has a song uh, inspired by Psalm 23. The Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd, and all kinds of other groups have been inspired by this beautiful psalm of hope and trust and grace. I remember the movie Pale Rider. It was a Clint Eastwood movie from way back in the day about a, about a cowboy preacher. And there's this frightening scene where a woman who's worried about what's going to happen to her next is burying her beloved pet. And she quotes the psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley, I shall fear no evil. And then she adds, But I am afraid. There's honesty in that word as well. 
Sometimes it's difficult to trust that these words are true. But the promise of God's presence is built into the very theology and even the poetry and the, the way that it's aligned. James Limburg is a very good Hebrew scholar. He notes that if you focus on the word thou in that phrase, for thou art with me, and you look back in the original Hebrew, there are exactly 26 words. And then right after that word, there are exactly 26 more words. It's as though he was poetically saying, even in the way he arranged his thoughts, that at the center of our lives, the center of our being, the center of our living and our dying, there is the presence of God in everything that we experience. This is the promise. We don't know for sure that's what he's saying, but it makes some sense, doesn't it? Maybe we understand it with our hearts. At the center of our dying, our living, our very being, there, there, is God. Walter Brueggemann, another good scholar, helps us understand this as well. Let's put his words on the screen. It is God's companionship that transforms every situation. It does not mean that there are no deathly valleys, no enemies, but they are not capable of hurt. Psalm 23 knows that evil is present in the world, but it is not feared. Confidence in God is the source of a life of peace and joy. Go back to the second line. It does not mean that there are no deathly valleys, no enemies. Every single one of us, at some point, will go through that deathly valley. For some, it will happen many times. Every single one of us will deal with, with, with enemies of some variety or some type. All of us have difficult days, harsh moments, frightening seasons. But the promise at the center of this, of this text is the very presence of God. You know, on Wednesdays here at, at, at First Community North, over there in, in Grace Hall, we have a, a group that gathers called The Gathering. We have a light supper at 530 little worship service at 5.45, and then the youth and children go off to their activities, and the adults stay in with one of, our, one of our clergy for the Bible study. I was the leader last week. I quoted from the Apostle Paul and his sermon to the folks in Athens. Just so we're clear, Athens, Greece, not Athens, Ohio. He quotes a 6th century poet. We think his name was Epimenides, 6th century BCE, before the Christian era, before the common era. For in God, we live and move and have our being. Do you hear the beauty of that text? For in God, we live and move and have our being. We are already in God. Our very self is in, is in God. And God is more than the collective sum of all of us. We live and move and have our being in God. Think of this. Six centuries before, there's, before we know anything about Jesus, six centuries before Christianity comes around to this, to this world, Here's this Greek philosopher, this Greek poet, commenting on God and how we find ourselves within that God's very being. This person wasn't a practicing Jew. He didn't know anything about Judaism. But Paul hears this word in his study and his research, and he hears in that an inclusive description of who God is, not just for us, but for the world. For in God we live and move and have our being. You know, it's been said that in every pew, there is a broken heart. In every row of chairs, there is a broken heart. And if you preach 
on sorrow, you will always have a congregation. And it's true. I've yet to encounter anyone in my ministry who's never had their heart broken. I tend to think, though, that children and young people have this sort of happy-go-lucky experience, that, that life is great and wonderful, and it's only after you become an adult that you experience heartbreaking things. But I have to remind myself, I've known enough children and youth in my life to have seen that they, too, have had broken hearts, difficult moments, terrible times. And don't downplay it at all because it hurts. A broken heart at four hurts just as bad as 94 and everywhere in between. I read a marvelous story last week from Rachel Held Evans, may God rest her soul, about the time her son was two years old. He'd had a nightmare, a bad dream, came running down the hallway to her bedroom, said, Mommy, Mommy, I think there's a giant walrus in my bedroom. I think a giant walrus is trying to get me, and I'm afraid, Mommy, I, I'm, I'm a little older than two. That would scare me, too, if I saw a giant walrus in, in my bedroom. And she, said, she assured him, it's okay, it's okay, it's fine. Let's go back, we'll turn on the light, make sure everything's okay. You just had what's called a bad dream. You'll be okay. No, Mommy, I'm scared. No, you'll be okay. She tucks him back in bed, turns off the light. She pats him on the forehead and said, just remember, God is here. He gets out of bed with two fists kind of like this, says, I can't see God. She chuckles in her mind because she at that time was wrestling with her own questions, doubts, and fears, and worries about her faith and what she really believed and what the church was about and all that sort of thing. She says, maybe doubt is genetic and I've just passed it on to him. But there's truth in that little boy's words, aren't there? He's in the valley of the shadow. He's in the place of fear, of death. It's something we can never get away from. You know, I mentioned in my email on Friday that Psalm 23 is the number one sought-for psalm on a website called BibleGateway.com. If you're a Bible nerd like me, it's a totally cool website where you can look up all kinds of words and verses and and different uh, translations and, and all the rest. You know what else is in the top five? Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I'm with you. That's one of the top searches on this. Uh, it's like 14 million people a day go on this website. You, you know what also is at the top? Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see what the top searches reflect to us? When we're in times of trial, of terror, of fear, of worry, of death, we go looking to the sacred pages of the Bible, to the sacred websites, as it were, to find the words of hope, words that have spoken to people for 2,000, 3,000 years and more. Because every one of us, every one of us has a valley of the shadow. Every one of us. Sometimes the shadow that's most difficult to face is the shadow that we all carry, that shadow side that sometimes to our detriment we want to push down, push away hide and not face. When we do, it's really harmful for us emotionally, physically, spiritually. It can be difficult to face it, and yet it is there, that dark side. It's Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the the Russian philosopher, 
who said that the line that is drawn between good and evil does not pass, it's not drawn through the classes, it's not drawn through the parties, it's not drawn through politics, that line is drawn through every human heart. And even the most evil hearts, he says, have within them somewhere deep buried within a glimmer, a glimpse of goodness. And by the same notion, even the best of hearts have a place where evil could take root. But if we can face that dark side, if we can face that shadow side, if we can allow ourselves to see it and embrace it as part of every, what every human being in this life faces, we can be strengthened to move forward in trust and in hope in God's presence. There's a church, a small church, maybe one-fifth, not even that large, the size of this congregation, of this, of this building. Up on the chancel, there is a, a life-size icon of Jesus. In front of the chancel, and it's all the furniture in the entire room, there are 12 wooden chairs in a semicircle aligned toward Jesus. On the backs of each of these wooden chairs is carved the names of the 12 disciples. If you walk in to this chapel for prayer, it's set aside for public prayer. No worship services, no music concerts, nothing like that at all. It is simply there for anyone who wants to stop and pray. If you walk into that place and you look at the chairs, you can see by how worn one of them is, how worn out the chair itself is, which one is chosen the most? Which would you say? Someone whispered, Judas. We almost have to whisper it, don't we? Judas. Judas. You see, that's why I go to church every week. Oh, I know. Insert your joke about me getting paid to go to church. You can, you can drop that in here right, right now. I've been hearing it for only about 40 years, so maybe it'll be funny someday too. But here's the thing. Much to my family's chagrin, even when I'm on vacation, I go to church. Why? Because if I don't, I forget. I forget that there's already a seat for Judas. There's a seat for you. There's a seat for me. The great promise of this psalm before us is the simple but beautiful one that in all our lives, in all our experiences, in all our shadow moments, God's very being is there and for we live and move in that being. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art there.